Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. Our guest this week is longtime Root Simple friend, Nancy Clem, horticulturalist, systems designer, writer, teacher, and artist. She hails from Chicago and is spending some time here in Los Angeles with us this winter, where she gets to laugh at our silly Southern California definition of cold. But that is when I, actually the other night I, I put on a stocking cap and it was like 68 or something. I think you laughed at me, Nancy. You remember that? Yes, I did. Yeah. Well, welcome anyways, Nancy, to the Root Simple podcast. Uh, we're here to talk about a really interesting project that Nancy has going called The Ground Rules. And I'm wondering if you could say a little something about what, what the ground rules is and what the basis of it is. Yeah, sure. Uh, the Ground Rules is a community action and research project in Chicago. It proposes a kind of a highly visible model to reimagine waste and biological infrastructures of a city. So um, what we do is uh, we collect waste and take them to community soil centers that we've developed and uh, build a lot of compost. And then um, we use that compost in our community bioremediation projects. So it's a twofold um, community waste uh, cooperative, if you will. Um, with, I mean, it has two elements to it. That is the soil building component and the bioremediation component. Now, let's step back a second for people who don't know what bioremediation is. What, what, how would you define bioremediation? Well, we do something more, I would say, let's add community to the bioremediation piece. And um, community bioremediation uses living organisms to safely break down, bind, or remove harm, harmful substances from soil water and man-made structures, um, and we're trying to restore optimum health conditions to animals, plants, people, and communities. So you, it's, it's bioremediation with a strong community involvement. I think we need to get really into the community thing in a, in a bit, but just to, to make sure everyone understands, now you're in Chicago, we're in Los Angeles. We both have a lot of problems with our soil. What are the sorts of things that are common to find in, in urban soils? <laughs> A whole host of things, depending on what uh, age your city is and um, what kind of activities have happened in your city. Uh, you're looking at, you know, the, the um, history of that being held in the soil. So heavy metals, hydrocarbons, dioxins, a whole bunch of inorganic chemicals. A lot from, in the case of the Rust Belt cities, the Industrial Revolution. And then some newer cities, just from their uh, extensive growth, can, can ha their their conditions are a little different. Losing yeah. myself here. Well, actually, <laughs> before we started rolling, you you mentioned that fracking waste is going into Lake Michigan. Is this this is right? And the, the city of Chicago kind of welcomed this into your community. Well, yeah, there is a a BP is processing the uh, materials being used in fracking, and the waste is being dumped in Lake Michigan. 
affecting East Chicago directly and uh, people of Indiana and, um, of course, everybody else connected to the Great Lakes. And this is going to end up in soil eventually. Yeah, water (laughs) and then soil. It seems like people are looking for some way to do something about this, and yet composting so what you're proposing is basically a community composting project what sort of needs do you see this responding to you know is it different than say you know the we have a green bin here where you can put yard waste in how is this different than than putting waste in a green bin and sending it to the city to deal with well i've been to portland and uh, san francisco and seen what the facilities are doing with waste and it's admirable and it's needed But the thing about a city working uh, and taking all their organic waste is that we don't keep it local. And I would argue that our waste, since we produce so much of it, has to be seen as our wealth from reusable materials, you know, that we use like recycling and um, that we engage in and scrap scrappers are understanding this and all these uh, free cycling efforts. But we also produce a lot of organic waste with our yard waste and with uh, our food waste and other forms of organic waste. And by giving them up to the city, we're not able to use those to help build our own soils. So I really advocate that we keep it local and we uh, devise ways of absorbing that waste local and see if we can generate some economies from that and also new ways of connecting and, and um, building community from that. The organic waste stream is pretty huge. Food waste, we're wasting about 40% of the food we grow because we don't eat it in our kitchens or in our restaurants. And uh, and then just in general, how we want our grocery stores to look like they have these amazing piles of food. creates this ex- That expectation means there's a lot of food waste on that side. So by collecting it, ourselves and working out those relationships with all those restaurants and and different purveyors of food and therefore food waste, we can build a lot of soil locally. And that's really important because right now uh, city soils are are deemed unsafe to grow in. And most people are trying, when they want to grow something, uh, they spend a lot of money on soil. And there's a lot of effort to get clean soil. And all that clean soil is either sterilized, neutralized soil, or it's coming uh, straight from farms that are being stripped of it, that, it, that become part of the sprawl issue. So there's, it's never, if you get a soil, if you get soil in a bag, you have to realize that it probably came from a farm or it probably came from a, a natural area, or it's probably something you should question. It's someone else's use. soil fertility, basically, being yeah. stri- strip-mined, I guess you could say. Someone else's and, and another ecosystem, so that depends on it as being stripped. Or it could be uh, solid waste from your uh, wastewater treatment plant facility as well. So give me an idea of what the ground rules looks like. Uh, how? What sources are you taking waste from? And then what's the process? Well, currently, um, we're taking waste from restaurants and businesses. Uh, It's a lot easier to work with one kind of centralized kind of organization than, um, you know, uh, 180 people in an apartment building. So we're working with larger sources and we're working with um, uh, places where there's a kind of an organizational structure already in place. 
And we collect about two tons a week, and we're trying to triple that um, by May, which I don't think we'll have a problem doing. And we collect by bicycle cart. We have fantastic bicycle carts. They're kind of like mini trucks or by truck, depending on weather and kind of depending on the nature of our pickups. And we take that waste to one of our six uh, soil centers that are kind of within range, um, close range of those um, those restaurants and businesses. So uh, we developed the soil centers first uh, in collaboration with a uh, community group, and then we try to source businesses and restaurants in the area to fuel the, the compost needs of that soil center. And then we build we build compost, and then we uh, we train people about um, how to build compost way beyond Compost 101, and then we use that compost in our microbial remediation uh, strategies. Let's start at the beginning of that process. What's the reaction been by chefs and some of the institutions that you've worked with? It's pretty it's pretty funny. Um, a lot of these farm to table restaurants, people you think would be really low hanging fruit, are really um, hesitant. To get involved, um, they like the kind of clean uh, intake of of all this um, righteous food coming from farms and and um, local producers, but uh, they really don't like the unwieldy or the backside of that process, or they just don't want to have to pay anything for it, and they don't think it's going to kind of add to their cool factor. There's other restaurants that other farm to table restaurants that. I am working with, but it's been kind of surprising who resists it. And then there's other places that I'm kind of surprised are interested in it, that they have some kind of broader social interest or uh, ecological interest. So they are very excited for their business to be paired with like a sister garden site that holds a soil center. So they're really interested in looping things and getting involved on a more uh, local community level. So it's it's kind of surprising who I'm working with and who I'm not working with so far. So it's not just fancy farm table restaurants, I take it. You're implying it's it's like a broad spectrum of, of institutions. Yeah, it's a broad spectrum. And, and some of the people I'm collecting from can't afford our service. And so we work out a part, they pay some towards it. And with the idea that if they have funding later on, or if their business is doing better later, they'll pay more into it. But we have other exchanges. Um, for example, one place I get really, really fantastic bread from and soup and pretty much anything our crew wants when we show up uh, in exchange for picking up from them because they they want that service and they want to uh, connect their restaurant with that, with that kind of idea. So we work other economies. Trade, well. it sounds like. But the the people that are paying, does it reduce, do they have waste hauling fees that then they don't have to pay? Is it in lieu of that or does it just yeah. allow them to say that they're they're doing something good for the community by by recycling this waste rather than just throwing it out or sending it somewhere else? Well, the thing is waste collection is so cheap, just like um, getting water into our houses is actually really relatively cheap compared to what, what's behind it. Um, so it's really hard to make uh, you do save some money, but not that much because we're more labor intensive and we're not being subsidized 
So even if we're reasonable, we are going to cost more than if you were to throw your waste out. However, the backside of many kitchens, they're dealing with these, like um, the sous chefs going out at um, when they start at 3 or 4 in the morning prepping things. They go out to the dumpsters, and they don't have to say hello to rats anymore. And they're really pleased about kind of uh, that bad side, and and I get comments on that all the time. Like they just – they're – Garbage is easier to manage. We're kind of funny and friendly, so they like that piece. And, um, yeah, we frequently recognize them in the work that we're doing. So you're so. saying you have rats in Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I think we would think it was too cold for rats. <laughs> you know, I haven't actually seen the rats in L.A. I heard they live in trees. Ours are on the ground, and they're probably larger. I think you remember, I remember you telling me about a class you taught where one appeared. Behind you. Do you remember this story? It was oh. vegetable, fresh vegetables in the garden. Yeah, the fresh vegetable and garden class. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, one time I was meeting a group of kids. I think maybe this is what you're talking about. I was meeting a group of kids in Chicago at their garden, and their teacher was going to bring them out. And um, I got off my bike, and I went around to the garden. There was like two rats standing on their hind legs chewing down the cabbage in date, broad daylight. And I had to desperate like desperate rat to be eating a fresh cabbage, <laughs> bang it, bang in the ground. Or something I know like there's so yeah. so much better trash in Chicago. <laughs> well, I, I, I joke, but mm-hmm. there's a serious part of it, which is that, as you just said, that if you're feeding the rats, then you're not feeding the soil. True. Better to feed the soil than to feed yeah, the rats. Well, the positive way to of say the least. There. <laughs> yeah, get, I mean, it's it's about getting the waste in the right place where it can do the most good. You know, the other thing cities are doing, they're getting or a lot of um, rhetoric is going around in biodigesters, which I'm not so excited about either because I think it would do better to put in, a, in the soil than helping us generate more, more energy. A biodigester is a giant anaerobic composting process that you'll find in a lot of municipal places, right? Yes. So, it's yeah. one of those things that makes gas and the gas becomes power, like those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've seen some really ugly <laughs> examples of it that made me make me question them hard. Mm-hmm. I also don't know what the the resulting sludge on the other side, how uh, good of a, a nutrient it is for fields that it's later spread out on. And I, I think the energy it produces just, you know, it just, it just powers the sewage treatment plant. It so it's not like, even. right. It's not even break even. I don't think mm-hmm. to, to run the operation. Yeah. I've seen some CAFOs, some uh, combined animal feeding lot, operations and their biodigesters they're working on all the manure from their animals and the waste is processed the waste embedding goes through their burps and powers up the farm and then that bedding supposedly once exhausted of its nutrient is um, put back with the cows and they're sort of recycling the same bedding through their dairy cows 10 to 12 times over and they're saving money on that end too and they're very pleased about it but it's I, I, I kind of prefer the direct connect of a process. And so the idea of um, putting your waste in a green bin and having municipalities take it away to whatever faraway site that they're working on it. In Portland, it's two hours away. And uh, so there's fuel cost in that. And then they process it uh, uh, in large windrows, and then they bring it all the way back to uh, Portland or they sell it. It's just not as energy efficient or as direct of a process than um, a few people coming, picking up waste and bicycling it a mile away and, and building soil with it. 
A friend of mine in that business says, in the municipal waste business, says that he's in the trucking business, not in the you know, <laughs> materials recovery business, basically. Yeah, what, I mean, a lot of the compost, so-called composters aren't composting. I mean, I'm even talking about the independents. They're haulers. They're just hauling waste to a waste management compost site. Yeah, yeah, but let's get back to the ground rules a little bit. Okay. Um, we should talk about the money. We were talking about money before we got off on rats. And talking about the process of... of how's, how's this funded, Nancy? <laughs> <laughs> While we're working on that, I think it's through our, um, our compost um, hauling, um, so, uh, and then the workshops that we teach, and it'll be further funded, hopefully, by some other events that we have uh, coming up and publications. So at the at the the sites where you compost, you teach classes. Yes, it's for people to to learn how to do it on their own in their own backyard. Is that the the purpose? Yeah, I mean, I think most people are aware of composting one hundred and one, but they still can't practice it well uh, due to kind of just the mystery of it all, or just the inherent busyness of their lives, and maybe laziness on some on some parts. So we try to teach people way beyond the 101. We're more like 401 uh, composting and how to build it fast and how to build it well because all, all compost is not created equally. And we do other kind of side, you know, other kinds of uh, applications of compost um, that people might be interested in composting their pet waste or their animal waste. And then, of course, we're doing a lot of classes around uh, bioremediation, which is an, ap- an application for compost generation. Yeah, we need to get to the bioremediation part of this. I just had a couple more questions about the process itself. On the on the source side, you have to do a lot of education with people on how to separate waste or is there separating waste or how you how you managing that in like the restaurants and the institutional end of it? Well, it's kind of incredible. Um the ones that we're working with, I have very little waste comes into the pile. Uh, or into the amount that with the buckets that we're collecting from, so um, and I have to pick it out in the pile as it as it gets um, dumped, and we penalize them for that. So, so you we, mean like food containers and things like that, nitrate gloves and oh. all sorts of like little, you know, coffee make cups and nasty little forks and. But are you? Because com- you're, you're composting. I'm sorry. You're, yeah. you're, you're composting um, not only like the vegetable scraps from the sous chefs, but also like uh, f- plate scrapings and stuff from more institutional. Yeah, and hand washing stations. Thing, cooked where you have those. Oh, like, the, the nasty water kind of drainage. No, not the not the water, but the brown paper, you know, craft paper towels and, oh, okay. and things like that at, at wash stations and restaurants. What about meat, oils, all the things that we're told not to compost? We have some. I'm kind of opening myself up to a large operation. I'm talking with a large operation about their picking up their lunch. So it's a large office in Chicago where everybody gets lunch, and I'll be picking up cooked food, and there'll be a variety of materials. But I'm going to uh, go to have lunch and watch their lunch process and talk to them about what I think that needs. There's special. There needs to be special attention paid to those ways, not because they don't compost, but because they're, um, they're even more attractants um, to rats, the fats and the meats and the cheeses. So everything does compost, um, but you have to treat it with more care because you're working in, we're working in a dense urban situation. And the last thing we want is our smells or, or 
vermin, seagulls, uh, stray dogs, uh, rats, visiting or possum, raccoon, visiting our piles and kind of carrying things off or depositing their waste and infecting our piles with E. coli. So it's a concern, so I have to see what uh, what their waste looks like, how clean it is before I determine I'm going to accept that what would be a very lucrative contract. <laughs> exactly. now, the, where the waste is taken. So you said a lot by bike, which is very impressive in itself. Now, what do the composting facilities look like? How big are the piles and yeah. who's in charge like of them? How big is the facility? Well, I work on composting policy and ordinances on a state and city level. And we used to not be able to take more than, you know, backyard gardeners and even community gardens, urban farms weren't able to build more than five cubic yards of compost um, with uh, food waste only being able to constitute 10% of that. So now we can build up to 20 uh, on a site, not a backyard person, but on a community lot. And there's setbacks for that. But we're still only supposed to include 10% of, of food waste uh, in that pile. So, of course, you're mixing your food waste with organic carbons um, for that composting process to happen. And we're working with yard waste as well. So, on record, I'm pre-legal on that account. <laughs> <laughs> So this means you but, have to find yard waste as well. You have to bring that in. Like you're talking about, like grass oh, that's easy. And things like that. That's easy because uh, we don't have yard waste collection oh. in Chicago, and people are trying to get rid of it. And uh, it, you know, it takes up a lot of space in a dumpster. So um, it's something that you could either either scavenge easily or uh, just ask people for. I don't know if I answered that question completely, Eric. Oh, well, well, like what, what, what would we see if we went to one of your facilities? Okay. I would say you'd see a large composting bin. Depending on that community's needs and that location needs, it'd be anywhere between 6 and 15 cubic yards being built at one time. How big is that in like feet? Like about how long and how wide is that? For us folks who can't think in cubic yards very well. Well, I, I think a great way of picturing a cubic yard is imagine like a small pickup truck being a cubic yard okay, so like of capacity. It could be like 16 truck beds. Yeah. End to end. And realize that when you throw, you're throwing in 100%, right? But you're only going to yield about 30%. So that those piles, especially when they're active, are dropping consistently. It's almost like this magic hole that you can keep putting things in. So by even working six yards, you're able to, especially in uh, our warm season, able to uh, compost a lot in, a, in what would seem pretty small. But most people are working... I would say about a half yard, you know, or a quarter yard in their little Darth Vader plastic composter in their backyard. So we're doing a lot more than that. And the other thing you might see, you would see would be some kind of growing operation. So whether growing annuals directly in the ground or raised beds or in uh, sheet mulched areas. Uh, we have one site where it um, has a lot of... Um, Permacultural principles being activated, a lot of perennial ag, and um, we're working on a perennial um, you-pick fruit farm. Mm. And we have uh, another site that is um, has chickens and goats on it, so there's a meat production happening. Now, who owns these lots that this work is being done on? 
They're either there is either some kind of land lease through our land trust, so extended lease on the land by a community group. One is private. A couple are owned by kind of larger organizations, and you know that um, have several different community projects. So it depends on the site. One of them is owned by the archdiocese. <laughs> so they all have their own nature, depending on the neighborhood or the nature of the relationship. And I think that needs to be um, brought forward. And not only is our our restaurants, it's not just merely business partners, but their relationships that we're trying to develop. So we're um, um, we're also trying to develop collaborative relationships with all these different community groups, which is a lot to handle. But it's also where the true community building lies. And those relationships, you're training people there in how to manage these larger piles then. Yes. And then this is getting into the bioremediation end of it. What then do you do with the compost? Does it stay on that site or does it go? Where does it go? It stayed on, uh, It stays on site, but it's also used in other neighborhood sites. So kind of, we want it to stay in the neighborhood and stay within kind of like the family relationships in that area. All these sites are pretty far from each other because Chicago is fairly sprawling, and so there's um, a lot of you know a lot of projects going on in each community. So the networking of that site being a hub for many community groups is really important. But what we do is we uh, use that soil um, or resulting compost, I should say, soil amendment, and we do microbial remediation. Bacteria, uh, especially a, a, when we build our compost, we hope that there's like a, so many different varieties of um, bacteria in there because we're working with such a broad variety of ingredients. I would say that compost is kind of like making mole. There has to be as many ingredients as possible, and you shouldn't be able to distinguish any one in the mix. Um, it's kind of magical that way. And with those different food sources, that diversity of food sources, we're hoping we're building a lot of different um, kinds of composting organisms. And with what we think is very uh, good compost, and we test our compost as well before we turn it out on these projects, we hope that, that, that these different populations of bacteria are doing what they do best, which is um, chelating heavy metals and breaking down inorganic chemicals. Now, you said you're also working with mushrooms and plants. Yeah. So phytoremediation and mycoremediation. Myco. Yeah. How, how is that component of, of this project uh, playing out? So when we do community bioremediation, um, that second leg of the ground rules, we are working with community and we're working with the bioremediation. So we already covered microbial remediation or mycoremediation sometimes it's referred to. But the mycoremediation or working with fungi and the phytoremediation, which means working with plants, are um, all wrapped up into that. So we're working with um, three kingdoms plus humans, so four kingdoms, to remediate soil. So the mushrooms, which are also more broadly located than a plant, which is highly localized. What do you mean by broadly located? Well, they have, you know, bacteria are everywhere, and mushrooms have their networks of mycelium that are stretching out way beyond 
where we see their fruiting bodies. Right. It's, like, it's almost like roots. They're not roots at all on a biological level, but that's how yeah. we can visualize them. Like there's the, the mushroom that we see on the ground, and then it has a network of like fibers, like thread-like fibers that yeah. go for quite a long ways around the mushroom. Yeah, and they're stretching way beyond where you see your fruiting mushrooms, and they're sourcing and uh, collecting and uh, breaking things down that way. So, and then plants are really good at um, accumulating. They do some breaking down around their roots because they're working strongly with bacteria and fungi around their roots, but they also uh, volatize. They break things down and they actually volatize things back into the environment. So, the use, working with all three of these components is really important when we build out a site and when, we, when we're working on our site. We always test the soil first to figure out what the site needs apply uh, a strategy, and then we work with a, a local lab to test test our soil as we, you know, year year after year on our strategies. So to, to like, help me picture this, in a, let's say, a given lot that you've determined has some toxins or heavy metals or something in the, in the soil, it'll be approached as appropriate by up to three different strategies, right? You will, you will be laying down compost. Yes. Um, you will be planting plants um, and also uh, seeding mushrooms in the compost? Yeah. Then we'll be working with some the mushrooms in that application. There's some mushrooms that enjoy growing in compost because they have a good relationship with bacteria and other ones that we kind of have to put in a more... Um, they grow well outdoors, but they need to start in a more sterile medium to get going. And what sort of results? You said you've been testing before and after. How how have the results been? I think it's important to remember that community bioremediation is a huge project, and it's a really it's really it takes long term visioning, which is really hard for people to grasp. So plants, you know, have uh, seasonal cycles. Bacteria have much shorter cycles. Mushrooms have longer cycles. We look at the mycelium, but not necessarily with the fruiting. So, we're, But we're looking at soil cycles, and you have to think about soil where these deposits happened either many times over a long period of time or they happened once or twice, like a kind of a spot event that happened. And all our everyday everyday transgressions. Um, soil can clean itself, but it depends on how healthy it is to clean itself and what it's trying to clean itself with. But So we're looking more towards soil time, which is longer than tree time. Mm-hmm. And the community piece is what's really important to get people to realize this is long-term. You're doing this because you live in your neighborhood and you want to truly localize and understand what it localized. So you're going to ground down in that really kind of lifer type way and not just grow some vegetables, but heal the soil as, as much as you can through your life. So this is a very long-term vision. Before we started rolling, the word problematize came up <laughs> because I, I think we were talking about this exact topic because it is a long-term process. It's many years many and it's years. not... You know, we have a lead problem here in our own yard, and people have said, well, just grow sunflowers. But it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. Now, how how do you get that community part of it, that long-term thinking part of it going? Because that, you know, like so many problems in our culture are because of a lack of long-term thinking. 
How do you get that going? Well, there's not a lot of people who come at that naturally, but there'll be a few who understand that all these other quick solutions haven't brought any true change. And it's usually older, uh, usually older people or even some very young people are understanding um, through their studies that everything that's been tried, these different ways of en environmentalism or, or social equity, movements on social equity, it's still the same. And, um, and they see the health problems and the social problems from that, so they're committed to it. And um, frankly, even if it's really a long-term process, it's crazy fun to work with food slop. And um, it's really funny and uh, like remarkably weird some days uh, to work with that much food slop. Um, and you know, of course you have the alchemical, I mean the magic of a compost pile seems to get a lot of people where it is. And mushrooms... I mean, I, mushrooms are equally as fascinating. So what, what's interesting about the project is that certain people really will gravitate to the fact that we're working with native plants or weedy species that do well um, in our soil. So um, they're really interested in the plant aspect of it because of the pollinators or the medicinal or the food aspect, or they're really interested in the kind of the mystery of how mushrooms grow, or they're really just into the down and dirty of compost, composting. So it's, um, and we're kind of a funny, eccentric bunch, so we're really great to hang out with. I think, yes, it's long-term, but we're having fun the whole time we're doing it, and, and that's what people remember, and that's how people get involved. And they forget that it's long-term. They just know that we do it every week, and they want to come out and do it with us. No. I really like that stuff is planted on the recovering sites, you know, so that it's a living space. And yeah, it's a, space a living that, space. That's feeding creatures and providing some ecosystem as opposed to being, you know, like a, you know, a weedy and uh, soil compressed vacant lot or something yeah. like that. And the truck parked on it. Yeah. So a lot of our remediation sites don't look like anything more than maybe a native garden or kind of a very diverse, weedy garden. Mm -hmm. Are you looking at aesthetics when you're planning it out? Oh, yeah, we have to respond to aesthetics because we work in public. It's a public performance, mm. after all. So the, the we get a lot of questions when we're on site, and a lot of people wanted to know what we're doing. And when they realize that we're gardening with a different focus in mind, they are interested. And if it looks tidy or it looks at least interesting then they'll get interested. So one of our sites, it's kind of a walk-through, self-educating community bioremediation sites, has 20 placards carrying information about each of our test sites and what's going on with them. And just that organizational principle allows people to understand what this jumble of plants and mushrooms is actually doing, as they call it. So like a, it's a, as everybody knows, who's kind of working in gardening, you have to show that you care about a site so it doesn't get disregarded. Clues to care. <laughs> What's it called? Clues to care. Yeah, clues That's to like care. putting a bench in or, or a paved pathway or something like right. that. So even if the site is somewhat untidy because it's a natural, like, landscaping, the clues to care keep you from getting in trouble with like your HOA or your neighbors or whatever. Yeah, We're so big into clues to care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's that, so we have that one site, and that site has actually 
been really exciting because it's, people can just self-tour it at any time. There's no gate or fence, and they can walk through and get to know what's happening. And a lot of questions and, and um, volunteerism is coming from the existence of that site. But it also, it sounds like it makes visible the process because yeah. a lot of people are just going to see a garden and think, oh, it's just a garden, but they don't understand what's behind it. And what's behind a lot of gardens is miracle Grow, right? You know, <laughs> this is obviously not yeah. that. Ours is compost tea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, oh, so yeah. you make compost tea with the compost, too. Yes. So you're watering with compost tea. Yes. Have What have the reactions been to people? Because, you know, the three of us here were avid gardeners um we're used to composting although avid if not competent yeah <laughs> not necessarily competent on the side of the table but i imagine you've had some people that are not gardeners on both sides of the, the supply side and the end side of this process what have the reactions been to seeing the process of seeing food become plants and then healing soil yeah they're kind of i mean i think just like starting a seed anybody who does that and it's always a miracle. And so when somebody who who doesn't do this and they can't seem to find their particular waste in our compost, let's say the <laughs> hair from their barbershop, they're like, where is it, <laughs> um, is, is amazed uh, at the process. So if they come out, they're excited. I, we've had to do some outreach for some of the restaurants to keep, I think just as um, – kind of keep that relational piece or the educational piece going because they don't come out to our open houses and they don't necessarily read the newsletters we send out. And um, one of the ones, uh, one of the high-end restaurants was um, one of the ingredients that they wasted were um, kind of the bottoms of oyster mushrooms that very often would uh, continue to grow in the bucket. So uh, we took some clean ones off. And we jumped them, jumped some oysters on some cardboard and coffee grounds, also waste materials that we work with, and started growing them out. And so I was growing them out, growing out the spawn, and was going to my show that I have. I have an exhibition up right now in Chicago. But I had to go do the compost, pick up the compost, run to the exhibition space, reintroduce another 20-gallon fish tank with a bunch of mushroom spawn, and then go compost the waste. And so I had these jars in my truck at the time, and I brought them downstairs for the chefs to see and said, you know, I am, I'm culturing, I've been culturing something for the past, you know, several months off of your waste. And it's not just compost, but it's these mushrooms. And now they're going to go down into the, and now I'm driving them down to the exhibition space that I have this exhibition in. And everybody stopped working and was, and wanted to hear about how to grow mushrooms and couldn't believe it and kind of were tittering over their waste streams because of it, because waste becomes soil, becomes compost, becomes life, and can be get more life that can then, you know, uh, heal soils. And so they were just, that was kind of a little bit of educational outreach I did because the restaurants were coming to me. So I thought I'm going to show them what's going on. And, and it, it kind of blew them away. Now, you're doing bioremediation, so I assume that the <clears throat> you're not growing food back for the restaurants, or are you? And no. is that would that ever be part of the process where the mushrooms would be? Completely end up back disinterested. In the yeah. Why is that? 
I just, I, I don't like the, I, I don't enjoy the expectation of restaurants, the kind of expectation on production that restaurants and um, even farmers markets put on nature. Um, and then therefore the, the farmer or the, the grower. And I, I've sold downtown. I ran a farmer's booth uh, downtown that was a collective booth. So there was three different growers represented in our booth. And um, I thought it was a tough and hideous business. Um, I'd much rather just share my abundance with friends. And if uh, I have extra, I'll take you know, I'll take it as kind of like the, the special, they'll, and they'll put it on their special. So I kind of work with restaurants on that level. Like they'll put the quail eggs on special. I raise quail or they'll, um, I haven't done mushrooms yet, but I've done a lot of fruit that way. And it'll just be like a one week offering, but I don't want that pressure of cons- consistent production. I never want to become a production gardener again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's more, it's all about the compost itself and, and ways of getting healthy soil out uh, into communities that don't so they don't have to pay for compost. They've done bioremediation, but it sounds like you've also produced an art exhibit from this. Tell me a little bit about straddling the, I guess, the real world and the art world and, and why there's an exhibit <laughs> about the ground rules. Well, the exhibit uh, is... It's not just me. It's with somebody else who kind of rides the line between artists and activists. And I'm usually reluctant to work in the art context, although I have a pretty extensive CV of of exhibitions and uh, showings uh, within that world. It's always something I have a kind of a (laughs) um, difficult relationship with because I'm mostly what they're interested in is because I'm gauging something ecological. Ecological, they're interested in the work, but what I'm doing is a lived practice or a lived process, and it doesn't can't be contained easily within the walls. But I agreed to do this with a curator because it would be a more public space. It's with the Cultural Center in Chicago, um, which is a highly public space, so you get a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily go see a gallery show or find themselves in the museum would be in the Cultural Center um, because it's this beautiful. You know, it's a beautiful building, and they'll just would stumble into it. So I like the accessibility of this show, and uh, the fact we uh, that he, the the other person sharing the show we we wrangled um, <laughs> more money, uh, and we wrangled a, a talk from it. So we wanted to make sure we could get the really strong educational piece in this. But um, the show is interesting. The guard who sits in the show all day says he gets lots of questions um, about it, and people are generally excited about it and actually have something to say about it before they leave. Maybe you could describe the show. What does it look like? Uh, One half of the space is Emmanuel Pratt, who runs Sweetwater Foundation, and my half of the space, well, he has a bunch of photographs and he has some aquaponics going with some living goldfish. And then my side of the space has a uh, soil manifesto that I wrote, um, photographs and a lot of kind of um, physical elements of what we work with in remediation, along with a lot of mushrooms growing and a lot of um, seeds on the site. So I think that physical element and that dynamic element of living things in a gallery, which most 
gallerists and curators are deathly afraid of is what makes this a really accessible show. Now let's get back to the project itself. <laughs> yeah. um, it's such a common sense idea that you would not, you know, that the, the way we do things now is it is not common sense. Trucking's waste, wastings. It's crazy. Perfect. Yeah, it's, it's insane, <laughs> it's right? It's completely insane. Why do you think it is that we haven't seen what you're doing happen in more places? Well, partly it, it could be illegal in some places and people don't want to face that that piece of it. And I know that there's several people who have been trying to do these kind of low energy, compo- like localized composting systems have been shut down or get hassled frequently. So they'll stop. So it could be on a legal level. Um, there's a lot of pushback to making this happen. It's really hard to get the buy to get the general public's buy-in, but also particularly a city's buy-in or even just a, a restaurateur's buy-in on this. So is the that, fear, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, is that because people don't understand compost at all? I mean, I think a lot of people don't. No, they just don't. Quite what it is and what it can do. They just think it's a messy, stinky process that attracts rats, and they don't want any side of it. But it's the same thing that you know makes them afraid of their their dirty hands or you know the. You know why they're flushing their shit. You know, like it's just like it's people are afraid of. I think dirtiness, and there's a reason for that. Like long, <laughs> protracted um, history of of endangering our public health um, in cities and elsewhere with with our waste and all our scares around just being healthy. But I I think it's so. I think there's like a lot of that kind of irrational fear of the miasmas, um, <laughs> pe- why everything needs to be pasteurized, why people are afraid of raw milk, et cetera, et cetera. Spread the alcohol gel on everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, those places. I've never actually used that stuff. Um, <laughs> so like like a pile of, of, of vegetables breaking down is, is like analogous to a pile of sewage. Like, you know, it's seen it. It's but, threatening. But somehow it's okay to... Frack, I guess. It's fine to frack. <laughs> right. We don't Red see that. <laughs> yeah, the true like frack. Yeah, right. The true dirty, <laughs> the truly dirty stuff is something we just buy into and I actually. Know that always amazes me. And the, and the stuff that's just the clean, dirty, or the sane, dirty stuff is what bothers people. And it's probably because it requires us to be to grapple with that um, ideas of illness and mortality and and the dirtiness of our and kind of. Um, mess of our own existence you know i think it really comes down to this like really on on that level because when we when i talk to people about it they'll argue money and it doesn't work and i can out argue them on that and then they just like we just don't want the extra labor and i said what's the difference between throwing it in this bin or that bin so that argument doesn't work for me either so i think what's really the resistance piece is their disinterest in getting involved in the messier aspects of life. Fear of their that, own bodies. Well, yeah, there's, yeah. there's the fear of your own fear body. Fear of your own body. Um, oh, those horrible insects. Horrible. Well, fear of landscape, the bigger body yeah. of land. But then is there also maybe some fear of, of community as well? Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, people, are, people need it, but they don't know how to address it. So when we're creating a more relational you know, we're not just a business. We actually we say hello to you and talk to you and give you feedback and try to evolve you in our process. Um, 
I have two clients who just are completely disinterested. They practically don't even nod their heads at me, me or people who work for me because they're, you know, we're the garbage people and they're, they work, they work in their restaurant. So there's this like class or like some kind of distancing there in societal roles or, um, but, uh, yeah, when I left, I left that one client, I told him I was going to be teaching in LA for a month and that they were going to have my intern, um, do this. My intern was getting his PhD at the university of Chicago in political theory, which I just had to mention. Um, they, they got all wide eyed and, um, uh, and maybe that could have cracked through and maybe with some conversations are going to go start going. But I think, yeah, in general, it's hard for people to connect because because they're so lonely and it's gone on for so long. It's really hard for people to connect and start disassembling the ideas they have about their neighborhood or their, their piece of safety or ideas of cleanliness or how they interact with other people. I think responsibility comes into play, yeah. you know, with community. Like, you, if you acknowledge community, then you have to acknowledge your responsibility <laughs> right. within the community to the others or, or to the space, to the soil, whatever. And yeah. that that is a that is a burden. I think that people or they see it as a burden. They yeah. don't want a shoulder. It's easier yeah. to go home and sit alone and watch Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's the I think the grief or the fury or the just lack of knowing it can be so overwhelming that you want to avoid it. It's um, crushing. Or to go from the other. So if you you could be coming from a place of awareness of how bad things are, yeah. and yet and then want to stay in denial because that's a more comfortable place to be. I would, to be yeah. in a place of action. Yeah, I think you know from a from a. Um, where things are disconnected, everything makes sense. From, but of a viewpoint <laughs> of everything being connected, nothing, it doesn't make sense. And to hold that consciousness is really hard. Mm-hmm. Once you become conscious, it's uh, painful yeah. and difficult and complicated. And, um, not, and trying to figure out how to act or how to make meaning or how to do, create these new emerging economies or communities that you want to see happen is um is hard but i think those models need the models that are happening need to be visible so people who are ready for that can connect to them and i think some people actually some of the volunteers that we work with aren't necessarily that environmentally interested but they're they see us having fun and they want to talk to us and just just yeah be with other people and be with do other physical people. things like and those do two physical things, things are yeah. are amazing you know that people crave that yeah yeah. And you're drawing up a manual for others to yes. to learn how to do this. Can you say something about that manual? Yeah, it's um it's about uh it's I would say there's a couple pieces in it. One is um site histories, social histories, environmental histories of of our sites to try to create windows of how bioremediation or working with community can look different in so many in in the same town can look really different. Um, where we have to speak different languages or we're working with different social economic groups. There's different community issues in each, in each place that are, might not, while not environmental, might have to do with, uh, a, you know, an economic down, downshift or even in one of our neighborhoods is pretty wealthy, so they have other concerns and issues. So we're going to do some of that just to tell stories. It's more anecdotal history. And then there's going to be how we've approached all those places and the diversity approaches that we've taken, 
referring to a couple larger projects that we are working with peripherally, a rural project and some larger kind of social projects that we work with. Um, so kind of nodding out to some others that are working on this. A lot of resources and just a really basic uh, how-to of working with more kind of intermediate and advanced mesophilic and thermophilic composting technologies, more advanced, larger scale vermicomposting, you know, et cetera. So trying to get people to think big and, and work on a bigger scale and teach them how they can work with policymakers, businesses, and, uh, and kind of down and dirty grassroots groups. So both the technical components and the social components are going to be in the manual, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's pretty, it'll be pretty, it'll be, a sh it's like a short book. Yeah. But there's also a book too, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm finally, after about four years, finishing up my book on soil, a strong focus on urban soil. And that's a series of essays that kind of announce uh, sections where I've interviewed almost 50 different practitioners of soil in some way. And so we're in conversation around soil in these interviews. So that'll be able to, I'm hoping people get interested in how many people actually are thinking to, about soil besides the farmer <laughs> and, and other people people see is, and the geologist, you know, it goes beyond that. When does that book come out? That'll be the fall. Okay. And people can find out about it through your website, which yes. is? Uh, I have two. So the Ground Rules is a project of social ecologies, which is a low-income LLC called a L3C, socialecologies.net. And then my other site is called uh, spontaneousvegetation.net, and it has a more uh, kind of an activist and has more of my artistic projects. I'll carry the same announcement on both. It'll be worded differently, but it'll be available via both sites. Cool. Well, thank you, Nancy, for being on the Root Simple podcast and oh, for yeah, putting up so with much. cats rampaging around. <laughs> I think there was a, a, a chipper shredder running in the neighborhood. Yeah, my we chair talking. squeaked. Yeah, and the chair <laughs> squeaked. So, so thank you, Nancy. Yeah, thanks. That was Nancy Clem. Again, her website is spontaneousvegetation.net. We've been very lucky to have Nancy as a house guest for many years on her annual trip to Los Angeles. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. It'd be great if you could leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also available on Stitcher, and you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.